Hello and welcome to another edition of Critical Q&A, the show where I answer your questions based on what you've left for me in the comment section of my Q&A videos or have sent to me by email at askchrisshelton at gmail.com. All right, so a couple things here. Um, first off, I posted a video that's uh, been getting some, some decent views on uh, an interview that I did, or really uh, sort of just chat with Mark Headley. Uh, finally got him on the channel, and he dished for two hours on all kinds of stuff, including Tom Cruise, uh, Life at the International Base, David Miscavige, all kinds of interesting stuff, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's uh, instructions on the editing of his lectures. I mean, we covered a lot of territory. And, um, and there have been some very, very positive uh, comments and feedback on that video, so I encourage you to check it out if you have not yet done so. It's a, it's a bit of a lengthy video. You might need to break it down into some bits and pieces to watch it and get through the whole thing. But I think anybody who is at all interested in the content of my channel is going to want to do that because it's, uh, it's some pretty interesting stuff and a couple things that I have never seen or heard spoken about anywhere else. I also did a uh, podcast this week with Cybabe, and that is her <laughs> self-title, uh, Yvette de Tremont, and uh, she is uh, vulgar, she is interesting, she is crass, um, and we had some back and forth, and there's been some pretty interesting feedback on that, just posted it yesterday. Um, but if you, again, are interested in critical thinking or um, science versus woo or alternative therapies and some of the nonsense that goes on in that field, um, then I think you're going to want to check that podcast out. So, uh, so go ahead and take a look at that. Um, now, I wanted to just take a moment and acknowledge some of my recent Patreon uh, additions and supporters because uh, these are the people who are actually enabling this channel to continue going and me to do the work that I am doing. And so I wanted to thank Michelle Matthews, uh, Henny Sinkoff, Cynthia Wright, Melissa Ferry, uh, Hannah Peterson upped her uh, monthly amount, which was really generous, thank you. And Montgomery and Michelle Hagen also came on board. So thank you very much, guys, for helping me keep this channel going and um, keeping, you know, a little bit of a roof over my head, actually. Um, so that I can keep doing this and keep doing this full-time. And if you like my channel and like what I'm doing, then please do consider supporting me through Patreon. Even a dollar a month doesn't sound like a big deal. It actually helps. Uh, and some people are much more generous than that. And of course, you can also use the blue PayPal link uh, on my homepage of my channel, which is also linked in the description section below. It'll take you to a page where there are some links uh, on my YouTube page where there is a PayPal link and you can use that if you only want to do a one-off. Uh, but that also, uh, sometimes I've gotten some extremely generous support that way as well and it is always appreciated. Alright, that all being said, as far as the housekeeping notices go, let's get on with your questions. Jonathan Mark, do you have any thoughts on the CNN documentary Holy Hell about the Buddha field cult? I saw so many parallels to Scientology. Oh yeah, so I actually had not watched it, and then in preparation for the show here this week, I go, I went and uh, gave it a look, gave, read a couple articles about the documentary as well, because I didn't sit and watch the entire hour and 45 minute documentary, because I pretty much got the clue as to what was going on after about an hour of it. Really got the idea of what this guy Michel or Andreas or whatever he was calling himself uh, at the end. 
uh, was doing and how he was doing it and how he was getting followers, uh, you know, amassing these people to follow him and eventually uh, have these people waiting on his every word and command. And it was actually quite interesting. It was a unique documentary in that the guy who put it together had been basically being a videographer for the uh, development of the cult and his cult experience. I mean, this was, there's no question that this was a, a destructive cult, a, a very small one. I mean, I don't know how many people were following this guy, I, maybe 50 on the outside based on what I was seeing in the films at any one time, um, but he was doing all the usual tricks. He had all the, you know, cult leader 101 playbook uh, steps and of course as they talked about in the documentary he was a hypnotherapist he knew how to hypnotize people and clearly that's what he was doing when he was giving people these spiritual experiences and um, at the very beginning of the documentary that's even shown how he was tapping people's heads in certain places and doing things that were um, that I think, you know, anyone who knows anything about hypnosis and hypnotic induction and how you get people to get an adrenaline or endorphin rush and you translate it or give them the idea that they're going to have this kind of experience, like they're going to see God or they're going to have this awakening or they're going to have some spiritual enlightenment. And, you know, the, the videoing was very, very helpful to show how the group would create this own like this sort of dynamic amongst themselves they were hugging and stroking each other's bodies and you know there was all this like group love and and sort of love kind of kind of self-generated love bombing going on with these group encounter sessions and and therapy sessions that they were doing and he of course was the central pivotal figure in the middle of the whole thing who was providing the interpretation of these experiences that he was inducing in these people. So they, not really knowing much of anything about how that kind of shtick works, and looking for spiritual enlightenment. All of them talked about um, the, the various people who were involved in the cult, who were interviewed you know, years after coming out of it, and after the whole thing had sort of tanked, talked about how their background lent themselves to being part of this group. And if anything, that was kind of interesting because these were clearly intelligent people, or at least a lot of them were, but they had troubled backgrounds. And for people who are interested in why people fall for or get into these groups in the first place, you know, if you watch it carefully, you can see all the things lining up there as to how there were vulnerabilities, how there were problems, how they had personal tragedies or uncertainties or things about themselves that they didn't know what to how to manage or deal with, stress and trauma from their past that they didn't know how to manage. And instead of going and getting some, you know, some counseling or some help, they ended up turning to this guy. And uh, this was a fairly modern cult. I mean, this whole thing developed in the 80s uh, around this guy, this actor, failed actor, really, and dancer who decided that he was going to become a cult leader and really took on the role and really put on the presence. You know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if this guy read some of Hubbard's books or was somehow um, looking into you know, Scientology or Jim Jones or some of these other, you know, plenty of examples of groups that he could have looked at um, that would have given him some idea of how to be and how to conduct himself and how to have the stage-managed presence that he would have around his followers while we come to find out near the end that he was actually inducing 
uh, you know, enforced sexual relations with some of these people, even though he was decrying sex and saying it was bad and it was low-level energy. You know, the guy's walking around in a Speedo all day. I mean, he was pretty clearly throwing off sexual vibes and using that to his advantage with his followers and, and keeping them, you know, controlling people. As one person mentioned in the documentary, as a hypnotherapist, he knew the deep, dark secrets and and personality types of all of his individual followers. And it wasn't like, you know, for anybody who hasn't seen this or doesn't know what I'm talking about, this wasn't a case where a cult leader would take a person in a room and, you know, take a watch and swing it in front of their eyes and put them to sleep and you're now in a trance. And it wasn't that kind of hypnotism. That's not really how that works. You know, there's a, there's a whole lot of techniques that can be used for trance induction. And once you have somebody in a trance, or even prior, you have pre-hypnotic and post-hypnotic suggestions that you can use to sort of reinforce the confirmation bias you're already establishing in the person by telling them before they even have an experience what kind of experience they're going to have, how they should be, you know, and, and what they should expect from it. So they go into these situations or these, these group encounter sessions or these one-on-ones that they were having with him and they're all prepped. You know, there was, an, there was the example of going to meet God or, or have this, you know, this vision, this, this massive spiritual experience where they were going to perceive God in all of his glory. Well, they were all prepped for that. It's not like he walked up to somebody with no preparation and, you know, and hit him on the head and said, you know, see God. There was all this buildup to it. And then he only let certain people uh, who were following him have this experience. Other people he decided not to. Said they weren't ready for it yet. He had this one woman very anguished and, and grief-stricken because she wasn't chosen, even though she had been around in the group longer than other people who had been in the group, and she didn't understand why she wasn't ready. I'll bet she wasn't as easy a trance subject as some of the other people in the group uh, who hadn't even been around that long. So, um, you know, but who knows? I'm just, I'm just that's just my, my guess. But regardless, this guy was just a con man, just a sleazeball, and he used these people for years and years. Uh, lived on them, took their money, took their time. Eventually, as the years went on, started treating them worse and worse and worse, expecting more and more from them, until it broke. And, you know, there was, he just pushed it too far, and too many secrets came out about how he was uh, doing bad things with people and being a, a, a gigantic hypocrite. And so that woke enough people up that they confronted him and dealt with it, and then the whole thing sort of fell apart. So that's kind of the story of this Buddha field, little tiny cult. But there are a lot of lessons to be learned from watching that documentary. It's a bit slow. There's a lot of video footage. I think it could have been edited a lot more tightly. But it did get across the, the process of, of, of cult indoctrination and, uh, and kind of how that process works. It would have been maybe a little bit more interesting if they'd had one or two other cult experts uh, come on there. It was interesting how they also talked about the 1980s Cult Awareness Network and a guy named Rick Ross and how um, there was a real fear, you know, in the group about how this cult awareness network and this guy was, you know, going to come along and maybe kidnap people and stuff because that was the kind of crap they were doing in the 80s. Uh, really, really not, not cool that they were doing that stuff. That's not how you get people out of these groups. 
But, um, you know, the response to that, of course, was for the cult leader to hit the road and go from, I think, California out to Austin, Texas and set up shop out there because they had to get away from, from this because, you know, the guy knew, this guy Michelle, the, the cult leader, uh, knew that people were on to him. And just like L. Ron Hubbard, he takes off. And he, and he takes some of a, couple, a couple of his followers with him, and then eventually the rest come out, they sell their homes, they you know, quit their jobs, and they go out to join him. So there are a lot of parallels to Scientology with this group. The reason there are a lot of parallels with Scientology is not necessarily because this guy studied Scientology. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. It's because this is how cults work. This, this, you know, this is just how these groups form. And whether they grow organically or whether they grow because a person has studied the cult leader playbook from earlier cult leaders, you know, if it's, if it's going to be a destructive cult, and it's gonna, you know, then it's going to be doing these different characteristic things. So, um, so it's always kind of interesting and kind of tragic and kind of horrifying all at the same time to see all this stuff roll out and see people waste years of their lives and believe me, I understand how that works, um, you know, in the thrall of a hypnotic teacher. And that's pretty much what this documentary showed. So if you're interested in that stuff, check it out. It's on Netflix. Um, basically, I just broke down most of the story, but you can, you know, read up on it or see the details of it. And uh, yeah, definitely had parallels to Scientology and pretty much every other cult out there. So there you go. Eric Kerner. There's something that puzzles me leading on from one of your last videos about life on the freelands and how it came about that people handed their passports into the organization. I have heard a number of stories of ex-Scientologists who felt they were trapped within the organization because their superiors had possession of their passports. I ask myself why this should have been such an issue for them. If I am in any foreign country and my passport is lost, stolen, or appropriated by someone, all I have to do is get hold of or go to my nearest consulate and report the issue then apply for a new passport. Democratic countries generally go a long way towards supporting their citizens with such things. There is something about the ex-Scientologist's concern that seems to me pretty naive and ill-informed about their own rights as citizens and being able to stand up for these. I ask myself whether this mindset, this innocent overlooking of what makes me a citizen and a person of independence, might not be part of what makes someone susceptible to the machinations of such a cult. And you would be right, because somebody who has a strong independent attitude and a forceful personality is not somebody who's necessarily going to get involved in a destructive cult and fall for some of the trappings and nonsense that they feed to their members. At the same time, that's not always necessarily consistently true. There isn't a gene that people have that makes them susceptible to falling into a cult situation. There are so many different high control groups out there. And there are so many different ways of engaging in coercive persuasion and, uh, you know, basically feeding on uh, a person's inability to think things through or feeding them enough lies and enough distortions and enough half-truths that they end up weaving themselves through this labyrinth of mental traps and landmines that you can get a person into a prison, but that prison is a prison of belief. This is why this expression that Lawrence Wright came up with for Scientology as a prison of belief is such a powerful metaphor, because that's exactly what these groups are. Rarely do destructive cults lock the doors, 
you know, make somebody stay inside. I mean, it happens. It definitely, definitely happens. Don't get me wrong. But for the most part, the barriers and the traps and the locked doors are up here. That's where people feel stuck and trapped. And so when somebody later on says, well, I felt like I couldn't leave. I felt like, well, they had my passport. You know, they forget things like their rights. Uh, they forget human rights. They forget human dignity. They forget independent thought because they get so admired in the, like I said, the labyrinth of thinking that goes on as a destructive cult member or as a person who's part of these high control groups. I mean, we, we call them destructive cults for a reason. Well, we also call them high control groups for a reason. There is an amazing amount. I mean, it's, it's almost hard to appreciate unless you're in the situation and then can get some perspective on it by coming out of it. The degree of control that exists, it, it, it's hard to fathom because, you, because people who are independent and are not part of a group like this wonder, you know, how could somebody surrender so much control to a leader or to a group or, you know, to such a situation? Well, they do so because they truly, honestly buy into the premise of the group in the first place, whether it's that they're going to learn self-defense and, and martial arts, uh, as a martial arts cult, for example. They're going to learn the way and the truth and the power of themselves. And so they're, they're told that in order to gain this ultimate knowledge, they have to make an ultimate sacrifice. I mean, it's a balance, right? This is just one example. And in order to make that ultimate sacrifice, they have to give up themselves, their ego, their, 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 their personality, their, their thought processes, their independence. They are told this is something you have to do. And they buy into that because they think that the carrot on the stick is worth going after and is worth all of this sacrifice. I don't know anybody who doesn't make sacrifices in their life that couldn't relate to this somehow if you just think about it. You know, giving up hours of your time in overtime at a job in order to sacrifice, you're sacrificing time with your family or your friends or your, you know, your spouse or your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You make those sacrifices because you feel that there's something there to be gotten that's worth more in the short run. Then you know, and you'll get this wonderful, wonderful thing, whether it's more money or it's a promotion, something like that, right? would be a, a lesser level of, of sacrifice compared to, you know, sacrificing your entire life for one of these groups. But it's the comparable sort of idea I'm trying to communicate here. And, I, and I'm, you know, that you give up something that you think is only going to last for a while. No one thinks, as in Scientology, for example, you know, even signing a billion-year contract and joining the Sea Organization, or joining staff, you just sign for a two and a half year or a five year stint. You feel like you are gonna give your time and you know that there are gonna be sacrifices. You know you're not gonna be having as much personal freedom. You know you're going to be sacrificing even some independence of thought and action. But you feel like you're doing this because maybe you're helping a whole lot of people, you're helping yourself, you're gonna get all these free services and get up the bridge of Scientology. Because, believe me, people who sign up for staff, for example, or sign up for the Sea Org are told in no uncertain terms, you're going to get your whole bridge for free. <laughs> and they know that this bridge to total freedom that Scientology offers 
is hundreds of thousands of dollars. They don't have that, so, but they do have time to give. So they think that they're giving that for a short run and they're going to get this amazing, wonderful, unbelievable benefit from it. So getting back to the passport issue, that's the kind of freedom that you give up or you feel like you're giving up. Okay, here's my passport. And now that can act in a way as a symbolic handing over of your freedom in a way or, you know, handing over your personality or identity. I mean, there's not like there's some ritual or something connected with us. I'm just saying in some ways of thinking that kind of sacrifice is made and you don't feel when you're in that group and you're surrounded by all these people who are all on the same page that this is the thing to do and there isn't something better to do and in fact not only is there not something better to do but leaving this group and going out and doing something else would be a tragedy of the first order because you'd be going out back into the junk garbage world that is just inundating you with lies and false information and uh, aberrations as they call it in Scientology, you know, the, the WOG world or the, the world of the, of the reactive mind. You know, Hubbard makes, I mean, there's tons of references that you can, from L. Ron Hubbard, that you could sit somebody down who's considering leaving. If they still think L. Ron Hubbard knows what he's talking about, and most Scientologists, for example, do, you can pull out some heavy-duty references where Hubbard just says right there on the page, this world out there is a madhouse of insanity. And if you go out there, you're going to be surrounded by and overwhelmed by it. So this is the only place, as bad as it might be, we, we, he says, one of the things he said, for example, is we, we build a world on broken straws. Sometimes there are fatalities. Sometimes there people fall down. We have to help pick them back up again. And, and here's a person, for example, you, you know, here's this guy who wants to leave, and here's this person showing them these Hubbard references out of compassion and out of, you know, I'm just trying to help you, man. You, you're trying to leave. You don't know what you're getting into. You don't know what's going to happen to you out there. Sure, we're not perfect, but at least we're on the right page and we have L. Ron Hubbard's technology and we know what to do and we know where we're going. Don't you want that? Isn't that what you signed up for? Yeah, it's rough. We can help you out with some of the things that are going on that might be a little rough. Maybe you've been working this one job, you don't really like it, it's been rough for you. Maybe we can arrange to get you a different job that isn't so high pressure. You know, like they'll make accommodations, they'll work with the person, they'll try to, you know, it's not all dirt, dirt, you shall or you're going to be, you know, it's, it's sure that happens too, but it's not always that way. The love bombing and the persuasion, you know, those are very strong elements, especially when they come from somebody who is considered an authority figure. So, I mean, just look up, you know, Stanley Milgram's experiments if you have questions about the percentage of people who can be persuaded to do pretty insane things just because an authority figure is telling them to do it. The numbers are around 75% that just because an authority figure is ordering you to do something, you will do something quite inhumane to another human being. So, I mean, we, we know this. We know this through repeated, you know, continual experiments on how people operate. So that's why you seem to, you know, from outside the bubble world, you look in and you go, that's crazy. I wouldn't do that. Why would they do that? because their mind is in a totally different place than where yours is. Okay, so those are some of my random thoughts here. 
uh, in answer to your question. And um, so I, I hope that that gives you a pretty broad look at you know the, the the way some of the mind control works and why people either you know like I said maybe they are susceptible to it or maybe they just become more and more susceptible to it because of the the gradual indoctrination and coercive persuasion that occurs to get them into that prison of belief. Mary Beth Wiley, what past life experience of your own that you may or may not have shared with your auditor sticks out in your mind? Also, did you always have the same auditor? Are they assigned to you or do you use an auditor that just happens to be available? I would love to hear stories from auditing sessions as I am fascinated by the process. I guess I always assumed that auditing was more of a confessional for Scientology to use against its members. Also, does David Miscavige now or did he ever receive auditing? Is he even considered clear or moving up the bridge? Okay, auditing experiences. Oh man, I had thousands of hours of auditing. So, um, let's see here. Well, first off, let me address your question about David Miscavige. I think I've also answered, uh, maybe since you've answered, asked me this question, I might have had this come up on my show before, but uh, no, he's not gotten any auditing since I think 1993 from the last reports we have. And um, he's supposed to be OT, you know, gloratorious or something, but I, I have no idea where he's at on the bridge. But everybody in Scientology assumes that he's OT8 or even higher, because if anybody would be assumed to have exposure to the upper, upper OT levels, which by the way don't even exist, then Scientologists would assume David Miscavige does. That's how I used to think. I figured if anybody had read the OT 9 and 10 materials, and was, you know, prepped for that, it was David Miscavige. So that's kind of the assumption that's made in the Scientology world, but I had no idea, no idea when I was in Scientology that he had not had any auditing since 1993. This is not something Scientologists talk about, they just make assumptions. David Miscavige is not a person that people, at least not in any zone or sphere I was ever involved in, he is not the subject of a lot of conjecture about things. Okay. As far as auditing experiences go, it really, I mean, let your imagination run wild and that's what you're going to find in auditing. Uh, auditing is not just confession, confessionals of your past sins. That is a specific kind of auditing called security checking. And that's not the most widely used form of auditing by a long shot. I've talked about objective processing where you're walking around touching things and stuff. They do that stuff for hundreds of hours. I mean, it's not just like, you know, go walk over to that wall and then, okay, you're done. I mean, they just go and go and go with that. And believe me, there's all kinds of trance induction and weird visions and stuff you're having when, when you're doing that. Uh, kind of similar to certain drug trips because the same kind of things are being tripped in your head uh, when you're in a trance state. As far as uh, my own personal experiences go, you know, I don't know, I let my imagination really run wild. I mean, I had uh, uh, sessions where I talked about being uh, an officer in a, in a space fleet and destroying a planet by uh, somehow uh, shooting something down into the atmosphere that ignited the oxygen on the planet, right? So everything just boom, it was gone, just like that. We had this, this some kind of a bomb or, or, or weapon that would do that. And it was instant, you know, out goes, uh, uh, destroys all life, right? Um, so that was, you know, one thing I, I came up with. 
another one was uh, a, a rescue of somebody. I, I had this auditing session where I imagined that I was a, uh, this is all in a past life, right? That I was uh, some kind of a, uh, kind of a super paramedic, and I and I rescued some kid from a from a car that was falling off a bridge, and I had been kind of roped, and the car fell, and I grabbed the kid, and I had, and I was hanging by the rope. I mean, it was very heroic, you know, and I'm sure it would make a great movie scene, but uh, it was all just in my head, you know. So uh, I don't know. Those are a couple examples. Really, literally, the sky is the limit. Your imagination. I mean, I also ran some things in auditing that I said I couldn't even describe in easily in words because the perception of it was so weird. Uh, you know, we, like odd colors, sort of, um, you know, like those, uh, those little toy tunnel things that we used to look in as kids and they would show all these ge you know, sort of changing geometric shapes with rocks and a magnifying glass or something. I, I once had an auditing session where I imagined that that was how I was perceiving the universe. And so I was sort of relaying the story of, of, of traveling through some, you know, sort of not dimensional, but weird uh, tunnel. And, and it looked like that. I mean, I was drawing stuff up from anywhere I could, you know, my imagination could find it. And, uh, and telling my auditor this was, this was what was happening because I had been required in the auditing session to talk about an earlier similar incident to something that was ha that had happened in my lifetime here here on earth so maybe i you know had some uh, and this is how most auditing works is is you address something from your present or relatively present time some kind of problem you're having with you know an interpersonal relationship problem or a work problem or some kind of trauma or stress you've experienced maybe an accident that you had or it doesn't have to be a dianetics type incident it could just be an upset you have with somebody and um, you know maybe you had a fight with your boss or with your wife or with you know your kid or something and you're upset about it you know and you're gonna and you're gonna address this in auditing so the auditor gets you to talk about it he checks a couple things on the e-meter as to whether, let's say it's a, um, a problem with uh, the ARC triangle, right? I've done a video on this, so if you're curious what I'm talking about with the ARC triangle, check out my Basics of Scientology series where I explain it in detail. So maybe there's some uh, upset, which means that there's a break in affinity, reality, or communication. You find out what it is, and then you look for an earlier time, and you look for an earlier time, and you look for an earlier time. And you keep going back earlier and earlier and talking about what happened. And if that doesn't provide enough relief and the needle on the e-meter isn't floating, which means it's moving gradually back and forth like this, if that hasn't happened, you got to go earlier. And you keep doing it until you go into past lives. And that's kind of the pattern of most auditing. There's other kinds of auditing processes and procedures. There's lots and lots of them. Uh, it's, it's not a one procedure, one command type of thing. Hubbard developed hundreds, maybe thousands of different auditing commands and procedures. So when we talk about auditing, I, I talk about it in general terms because to try to communicate just one kind of process or one kind of procedure is a little difficult because there's so many of them. But the, the, the general idea with auditing is that that's what you're, you know, you're going earlier like that. So uh, like I said, imagination is the limit, really. And, uh, and I have heard some pretty wild stories auditing other people, and I came up with some pretty wild stories myself in being audited. Nick McNaughton. 
I have a friend who worked at the Sea Org's publications organization. She told me that Hubbard's books were updated to match the current society. In the original version of The New Slant on Life, Ron stated that the society was doomed when the wife left her job of raising the children to take a paying job. When many women moved from the home to the workforce, the book was updated to be in agreement with this. Are there any similar updates to Ron's tapes now that science and the internet have exposed many of Ron's statements as false? Ron says incident one occurred four quadrillion years ago. Science puts the age of the universe at around 13.5 billion years. Ron defines many volcanoes in incident two, which occurred 75 million years ago. Geologists have come out stating that these volcanoes did not exist 75 million years ago. Ron states in a lecture that Mary Sue was auditing him when he flew out of his head and ended up on Venus, where he was nearly hit by a train. Satellite mapping of the entire surface of Venus has shown there are no trains. <laughs> All right, uh, Hubbard's nonsense, yeah. So, um, okay, as far as the revisions of the book goes, we actually talked about this in a revision of the lectures. It, we talked about this in my video with Mark Headley that we just did this week. That was one of the reasons I wanted to get him on my channel is because he had direct knowledge of how the lectures of L. Ron Hubbard have been edited over the years. And uh, that is a fascinating bit in our talk. So I'm not going to try to give you all the information on that because you really need to hear Mark talk about it. But as far as updating the lectures, they edit things out. But no, they don't go in there and change Ron's voice or rework what he said. No way. Uh, here's the mindset. One of the things I was talking earlier about mindset and prison of belief. Well, here's one of the things that Ron himself says in certain lectures and that Scientologists believe. And that is that Hubbard knows more about science and physics and astronomy than scientists, physicists, and astronomists or astrophysicists, right? He, he, Ron knows more because Ron's the guy who's got the whole track recall, the, the recall of past lives going back millions, trillions, quadrillions of years. And his word is the authority in Scientology. So if he, and also keep in mind that his lectures were given in the 1950s, 60s, and early 70s. There are not lectures coming after that time. Most all of his lectures were given before we even were in space or went to the moon, much less knew what we know now through the Hubble telescope and through, you know, astrophysics and a lot of the science has progressed greatly since Hubbard's time. But, you know, that we didn't have that, they didn't have that information then, otherwise Hubbard would have read up on it and incorporated it into his cosmology. Instead, his cosmology, which is a grand, big picture that it takes years to figure out because he contradicts himself in certain places and he talks about things on the OT levels that lower level people don't get until they get to those levels. Like no one knows anything at the lower levels about incident one and incident two, uh, but they do know about other incidents and other things like implants and, uh, you know, that happened millions, trillions, quadrillions of years ago. And Hubbard talks about, uh, in the 1960s, he was talking about incidents that were trillions of trillions of years ago. I mean, you know, like old stuff. And that's why I have always, I finally, when I learned about all this stuff, when I was still a Scientologist, I finally realized there's really no age you can give to a, a spiritual entity or a thetan. You just have to say, look, you've been living for a near infinite amount of time. I mean, it just goes so far back. 
we can't even think with that because I did some math one day and I realized our brains can't process anything really past a million years in terms of the size of a number. I think we're challenged, really challenged, to get the size and scope of a billion or a trillion. I mean, these are numbers that are so large, it would take thousands of years to count to them. And, and that, those, are, those are numbers that go beyond our ability to really understand or think with. And so when you start talking about quadrillions of years, you know, you're talking about somebody being around for so long, it, it, just, it just blows your mind. It, the, the, you just start thinking with the words and that's, that you just kind of, okay, well, anything goes. And that's kind of really, in the end, what sort of happens to people's brains in Scientology. <laughs> I don't know about other cults or how they address, uh, you know, past lives and, and that kind of thing, but in Scientology, you just get kind of overwhelmed with all this information Hubbard gives you about all the things that have happened in the past, and you just kind of, it just kind of becomes this kind of mush, and you just realize, man, if you can imagine it, you've been it. If you can think it, it's happened. Because so many things have happened. I mean, Hubbard even talks about magic having existed way, way back. And uh, I think there's some lecture where he talks about big flying birds and wizards. And I mean, I, I don't even ask me what lecture. I, I couldn't even tell you. But he, talks, he definitely talks about a magic universe and how magic was real at one point. So even that door is opened. Uh, you know, he t I think the only thing he really sort of went off limits on or said didn't happen or didn't exist was multi-dimensions or multiverses. I think he, I think there's some place where he mentioned something about that. I think it was a 1950s lecture and, and he said, yeah, there's not different dimensions and stuff. But, but you, you, you know, you give yourself all this imagination and headspace for all of this time to have passed and all these amazing things to have happened in that time then after a while you just stop believing modern science. You just go, well, you know, they don't really know what they're talking about. Hubbard does. So it's easy to discount pretty much anything that geologists or astrophysicists or any scientist is saying in favor of what Hubbard has to say. And that's, that's about the best way I can explain it. I hope all that makes sense. Matt, I was a second generation Scientologist from birth. I only ever went to Scientology-based schools and played with Scientologist friends. I was briefly in the Sea Org and got to peek behind the wizard's curtain, but had to stay quiet about it since that would be natter. I quietly got out of Scientology about 10 years ago, though my family is still very much involved. Do current Scientologists, either public or Sea Org, not know the international exec strata was wiped out? Would a Class 5 or flag public even know senior CS int, WDC, etc., are supposed to exist? If so, what's the justification that's used to explain their absence? For example, what answer would I get if I asked a new OT8 who the senior CS int is today? Well, I'm not really sure what kind of answer you would get out of an OT8 now about senior CS int or whether they know about those people or what kind of jobs are supposed to exist up there. But when I was in Scientology, there was a book called The Command Channels of Scientology. And it was an older book that had been put together, which had a big chart in it that laid out the foundations of the, of the hierarchical management structure of Scientology. And it looked um, then 
that came out in the 90s, I believe. I think that was in the early 90s or maybe even the 80s. Um, then, years later, in 1996, there was something called the New Era of Management. And this was a big, huge, internal, mostly Sea Org project. And there were binders, and there were charts, and there was layouts of the new command system. And this command system that I'm describing right now is what I've laid out in my video called Scientology's Organizational Madness, which you can find here on my channel. It's one of my most watched videos on my channel. And it lays out with a graphic the whole structure of Scientology and the hierarchy. Um, so Scientologists could have access to that if they were in a course room where those materials existed or where a Sea Org member was around where he could you know, pull out some of these charts and lay it all out and sort of show the structure. It has been made difficult to understand. There are not materials that I've ever seen for the public that lay all this stuff out. Instead, you have to kind of figure it all out by looking up the different words in the administrative dictionary and try to kind of figure out the structure. So if you're in a class five org or a mission, which are not Sea Org level, organizations, then you're going to have a bit of a time of trying to figure out how Scientology's management is structured and how it's all supposed to work. Uh, the only way you would figure that out is if you had a course room supervisor or a word clearer or somebody in the organization who had some idea of how it all works and could explain it to you or lay it out for you. I used to do this all the time when I was a Sea Org member and I was out in these orgs and I would encounter public who had no clue what the Sea Org really was, what management consisted of, where David Miscavige fit in the hierarchy. And I think that that ignorance of understanding the whole structure is on purpose. I think Miscavige is not in any hurry to lay out any kind of command charts or show Scientologists the structure of the organization because he took the whole thing over and he gutted all of that. And they don't really know that unless they're watching Leah's show or paying attention to the internet, which of course they're not supposed to be doing. Those who do, those who have looked at that, watch my channel, watch other things, they leave Scientology most of the time because they see it and they go, well, this isn't what's going on. And, they, and that starts putting two and two together and that starts busting up that cognitive dissonance and the, and the various mechanisms that keep them in that prison of belief that I was talking about. But if they're not exposed to that information, then they have to rely on sources within the church. And those sources are variable as to what they know and what they're willing to talk about. Uh, at the continental level, where I existed as a Sea Org member, I never went to the Ent base. I didn't know about the whole. I didn't know about what happened to these guys. But I was wondering. For years, I wondered, where is Senior CS Ent? Where is these international executives, what's happening there? Why don't we ever know who they are? Why? Because there got to be a point, probably around the year 1999 or 2000, where it started dawning on me that they were kind of disappearing. We weren't seeing or hearing from these people anymore. And by 2004, I was pretty convinced something weird was going on, but I couldn't put my finger on what it was because I had no access to the international base and no one from the Int base was saying a goddamn thing about what goes on there. Again, Mark Headley and I talk about this uh, in, the, in the video uh, that we just did this week. So again, check it out. So, so it's kind of a vacuum of information for Scientologists in general as to what's going on in the Sea Org. And most of the time, you can get away with telling them, look, man, it's none of your damn business. 
The Sea Org is the Sea Org. If you want to know what's going on in the Sea Org, join the Sea Org. And if you're not willing to join the Sea Org, then, you know, you don't got the fucking rank. <laughs> As Leah Remini was told by a couple Sea Org members when she was asking about where Shelly was. She was told, you don't have the rank to ask that question. And that's how public Scientologists and even staff members are dealt with by Sea Org members. Most of the time, the Sea Org members who are saying that, they don't know either. It's not like Tommy Davis had some inside line onto where Shelly was or the other person who talked to uh, Leah about that. So, you know, they just didn't know and they were just trying to shut her down. So you'll get some of that going on too. Just ignorance, you know, foisting off their ignorance by uh, bad-mouthing the person asking the question because they know they don't know. Maybe they're even a little irritated or, or confused about it themselves and so they just, ah! And that's... You know, anyway, that's kind of how that whole thing kind of goes. And, and uh, I don't think there's too many Scientologists these days asking too many questions about what goes on in international management. They see David Miscavige on the stage. There's one event a year where sometimes other international execs are trotted out. Um, not the old ones, but new ones, young faces. This just happened a couple months ago. And they think, okay, well, there's people and they're somehow taking care of it. And, and that's about as much thought as they put into it. It is time for Flash Answers. Queen B777. When I was a public, the question about where David Miscavige came from was speculated time and again. Apparently, Ron knew him from wherever or whatever planet he came from. His parents gave him over to Ron to take over when Ron dropped his body. It all seems so foolish now. What was the Sea Org saying about him? I never once heard anything like what you just described when I was in the Sea Org. That is actually kind of funny. Um, and maybe a lot of the Sea Org would have believed it too. Uh, I, you know, we figured he was this kid from Philly and uh, we knew that he had, you know, grown up and, and came into the Scientology and came into the Sea Org and worked under Ron. And we kind of figured maybe there was some passing of the torch or something from Ron to David Miscavige. And that's about as much thought as we gave to it. I never heard anyone conjecturing about David Miscavige's uh, spiritual or whole track existence or, or connection with Ron. Mr. Marathon, 1989. How often do you hear Trump compared to LRH? Rounded off to the nearest hundred. <laughs> yeah, uh, a lot, a lot. I'm not gonna even put a number on it, but all the time. Angie, UK. Do you have an endless supply of t-shirts? No, not endless, but I think I have an impressive number at this point. Okay, everybody, that is our show for this week. Thank you very much for coming around and watching and listening to what I had to say. Um, I, by the way, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, I have uh, copies of my book, and if you want an autographed copy of it, then uh, contact me or um, send me some money on PayPal. $20, or rather I should say $25 if you're here in the U.S., $40 if you're outside the U.S. I was shocked to find out how much it costs to ship to Canada, as well as the U.K. and uh, other places from some people who have ordered some from me. So I still have a few. If you're interested in that, then um, reach out to me and we'll figure it out. Talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye.